You're listening to Soul Radio. Welcome back to Homeroom. I'm your host, Benjamin Aida. In this series, I'll be speaking with some of the people I've met on my journey as a founder and creative director of Le Benjamin. These people are friends, but also have served as mentors and guides, sharing advice and experience. In these conversations, I ask them questions on what drives them, what inspires them, but also advice on what it takes to make it in their respective industries. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Burak Chakmak, the Dean of Fashion at Parsons School of Design in New York. Burak has advised some of the biggest global brands in sustainable practices and innovation. I'll be speaking with Burak about what it means to be a sustainable brand in 2020 and how he's coaching the next wave of designers to think differently about their approach to fashion and defying current industry norms. Burak, welcome to the show and thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure, Benjamin. Thank you. Like Burak, what I wanted to tap into is like the last three years, everyone is talking sustainability, but you've been uh, in it over 20 years from what I know and correct yeah. me if I'm wrong. That's cool. And um, do you feel like it's kind of fake because people are talking about it now? It's a trend. Um, I mean, it's a responsibility for all of us. I mean, you have to think general. about it in the in the context of the society and where the culture is, what people care about, how they want to live. Ultimately, the way you're approaching it is thinking about does a brand take it seriously? And when they say they are being responsible and sustainable, is it genuine? Uh, but you know, a brand is reflection of what happens in society and everything around us. And uh, if they are not relevant for the moment, they're going to be extinct. And, and the reality is it's all about being adaptive and being ready to change to provide something what people want to experience and what they desire. So if I think back about my journey, I started a long time ago in the Bay Area uh, during the first high-tech boom, actually. I was uh, working with Gap when they were having issues with their supply chain. And uh, that was a moment where it was really about risk management because uh, you know, the, the word sustainability was not even used. It was people did not criticize you for doing the wrong thing in your factories. Uh, but the reality is there has been enough conversation around the overall impact of humans on the world and what's happening with climate change, but also how we're polluting everything around us, including all the way to what goes into our bodies. Uh, so that level of recognition has come to a play to a level where now people are fully aware of their individual impact, but also the the role each product plays that they are purchasing from different brands. So suddenly the conversation is at a different place. And uh, if you think about it as brands are made up of individuals and the leadership in the brands are also individuals that are experiencing the same culture around them, we are seeing definitely a big move towards taking it more seriously in terms of the care that goes into what you produce, how you produce it, and its impact on the overall environment but also it's relevant to relevance to the people around us so uh, in some ways i think uh, i don't know i don't even want to say it's about sustainability it's <laughs> about evolution of culture it's about understanding that we have to be much more aware of our connection to each of us to the world to nature and and how does it reflect on everything we do day to day because 
it should not be separated as you know what you buy versus what you do. It's all about behavior, and we are talking about behavioral change. And uh, ultimately, as an individual, the way we behave will influence what kind of products are produced and how frequently we we buy and what we buy as well. Yeah, now there's so many brands that like say, "Oh, uh, I moved to organic cotton." <laughs> Whenever I see that, I start laughing because it's like you said, it's about behavior, behavioral change, and I feel like it has also to do with your team getting educated, and the social responsibility culture has to be elevated. You cannot just go from one day to the next day. Oh, I'm a sustainable brand by just ch- changing the raw materials. Correct. Yeah, I mean, look, that's that's part of the equation, right? I, I'm not saying don't uh, care about your materials. You absolutely should, uh, but it, you have to be very systematic about the way you go uh, and uh, and how do you address the issues. Uh, you know, you look at the full value chain. So one part of being more responsible, sustainable, conscious is about understanding the full operations you have as a brand. So that's being a good business person to begin with, uh, understanding the overall financial, environmental, social impact of everything you're doing. Uh, but you can also move beyond that to say, what is my purpose as a leader of a brand and what is the thing that I want to do? Because you know, if, if you're doing, especially when it comes to fashion, if you're doing fashion just to make money and to be honest, a lot of people now getting into it in that way, hmm. some of them are not even creatives. Uh, they see the opportunity that you can actually make millions and all the way to billions in some cases, really large companies, uh, but not necessarily doing it because they care about creativity, they care about design, they care about people, they care about culture. It's a different story. I mean, I I, I don't want to even tackle that because I believe in true creativity through design and being honest and being passionate about what you do. So for those brands, and those are the ones we should be highlighting and celebrating and working with, uh, I think it's all about the purpose. And that kind of reflects across the whole operations in terms of the type of people you hire, how you work with them, but also even how you manage your operations and being conscious about the impact you have on everybody's daily lives, all the way to your own employees. And after like working over nine years with uh, Gap, you moved yeah. to Caring, from what I know. And, um, you know, moving from a US company to a European company, was there a different approach? How was the culture different between the two entities? Yeah, I mean, I think this goes to the core of also how is desire created because you the minute you go from mass market to luxury it's another world and uh, and then you recognize you know what creates the perception of luxury and also how that influences on people's desires and interest in being part of that world and how that trickles down all the way to mass market products uh, funny enough with everything happening around us all the way to even the situation we're living through now with the covid-19 is influencing even what is the definition of luxury going forward. But the moment that I joined, I think the biggest difference was around the fact that um, you know, luxury had a much more control over their brands, a vertically integrated uh, models where they are able to really create everything in producing factories they either own or work for a very long time in especially proximity locations such as Italy and Spain and France and 
and and then able to produce smaller quantities, but ultimately sell it for a higher price. But part of luxury is marketing. That's a given. Uh, and uh, that has a huge influence on building the perceptions. The truth is uh, it's all about the value chain between the two and understanding that in the luxury world, it's much more controlled. You have uh, direct oversight in how you produce things, where you sell, how many you produce, also what goes into the product. Uh, but beyond that, it's ultimately about uh, really investing in marketing to differentiate between the two types of brands and be able to ask for higher prices. But what made me a bit nervous in the past uh, probably five to 10 years is to see how luxury started to become much more mass market in their business model. Yeah, because the reality is if you're a luxury brand, it's so hard for you to grow over a billion dollar revenue each year if you're not selling really high quantities and really frequently. So there was a world where we would have two, three, maybe four collections a year from a luxury brand. And uh, Zara and many other mass market brands created a whole new direction where you introduce a product literally every week in the store. And now we are seeing the same thing happening in the luxury world. So in some ways, overall fashion and design world is kind of getting excited about selling a lot of products, but of course it has a big impact. And then it's also dismissing the fact that we are not looking at where culture is and what people want. I think being locked down for a few months for most of us around the world, we realize that we were incessantly shopping and buying stuff nonstop. And uh, and then you, I don't know if you've been reading in the news, but many places in the world, there's this big movement around decluttering happening, especially in the West, because we have too many things in our pro, in in our uh, closets. Uh, and I, funny enough, even in uh, UK and a few other countries, I'm seeing people sending messages saying, "Please do not drop your." second-hand clothes to uh, charity shops because they're not open. And it, it will basically just create more waste in front of these stores <laughs> until everything opens up. So we don't even know what to do with what we have that we want to get rid of. So it's it's a unique moment where we are questioning how to have less in our lives rather than more at a moment where we are basically looking inwards, we are at home and we are reconsidering What's the what's the purpose of life? How do I want to live? What do I want to have in my life? Yeah, I was in Paris, Burak, uh, in this uh, sustainability panel. Yes. And I was shocked. Like, I, I knew that uh, we are a polluter, and, but I was shocked when I heard that we were only recycling 1% in the fashion yes. industry and 99% yeah. is all trash. Yeah. So when I saw that, of course... You read is a different thing, but when you see people talk about it and explain the angles of it, you really, you really feel bad as a designer because you're kind of the person that creates the demand. So for me, it was like during the first when this pandemic happened, I was like asking and questioning myself, and we had chats, me and you also. You know, yes. it's like how is life gonna continue because we are polluting, we are, uh, we don't need more merchandise, as you said. Um, but however, when you think of it, uh, you have to be kind of bipolar because uh, I mean it in a good way that you have to also create because there's so many jobs there. It makes you feel strong fashion. It gives you joy. 
So I think we just have to be more responsible, I guess, from what I hear from you as well. Yeah, I mean, but also look at ways of being creative. So, I mean, uh, everybody wants newness in their life. Fashion is about newness. It's, it's not about clothes, right? If it was about clothes, you have enough clothes for the rest of your life. You don't ever need to buy anything. You don't need the industry at all. Uh, so, but that newness and, and fashion has something special, right? It defines who you are, uh, your personality, way of communicating what you want to be and how you want to represent yourself. So we don't ever want to lose that. Uh, and it brings people together. It creates community. It, it's, it's part of a way of reflecting on the culture as well. Uh, so how do we do that without necessarily having the same level of impact? And part of it is also letting go about the traditional notions of what is the right kind of product or what is the right definition of luxury or what is the coolest way uh, to dress yourself. So in some ways, we are seeing a big shift even in the younger generation. There is a huge appetite for uh, what already exists and repurposing and reusing it. Uh, I mean, I'm looking at 14, 15-year-olds in uh, the West Coast in the U.S., and you know, they're the biggest hobby is not to go to a shopping mall. It's much more about going to vintage stores and finding interesting pieces and combining and doing something unique with it. Also, upcycling is a big trend right now. Yeah. So, I mean, in some ways, also, you're seeing newer models being introduced as well. So this is the technology in some ways enabled us to stay connected even before all of this madness happened. But it will go further because now we know that even if you're locked down, we can do a lot of things uh, when we are not uh, you know, in the same space. It's true that you, know, you can look at the impact of a brand new product you're creating. You can look at its circularity. You can look at, can you create a full closed loop system where everything you created is collected and recycled and potentially turned into new yarn and you can redesign new products? So that's one approach. Uh, but the other part is you know, all of these new models of, second and close but also leasing models subscription boxes and uh, and and even peer-to-peer -peer sharing uh, because technology allows us to talk to each other directly and sometimes you may not even need a brand in that equation and you may actually have designers play a different role as individuals to help you curate style come up with new products without necessarily buying into one brand And in some ways, this was already the trend because there was a moment in the 90s where, you know, you saw people that are really going after one brand that they loved and bought all their products. But that world evolved into where the high and low mixing stuff, there was a moment where you were wearing the uh, expensive luxury jacket with a gap white t-shirt. Uh, and then it basically got into a place where you're now happy to mix it with a vintage product or something you lease from somebody else. All the way to even in New York uh, in the past several years, I've seen with uh, the designers that I have been dealing with that you know they have their own communities, uh, on, even on WhatsApp. When they're going to special events and occasions, they basically said, this is where I'm going. Who has addressed this size? And then people send images to each other And then they borrow it for the moment and then they bring it back. So, you know, we're creating all these new models and they, they're not necessarily all monetizable because some of it is about community itself. Uh, but it allows people to think of alternatives rather than buying new products. So this is also a new threat to the brands to think about how do you strengthen who you are as a brand? How do you build a following? And how do you 
be part of that community so that people continue to buy your new products, but also you help them with their lifestyle without just selling products, but also helping them in different ways as well. Yeah. Going a bit more into the uh, manufacturing side, how do you see the retail ecosystem in the past two decades uh, change the, in, in terms of manufacturing? There, there's a big difference between, uh, you know, the the trade rules change where there were a lot of quotas where you were able to produce for large companies. They used to basically have limitations on how many units they can produce in each country, especially if you were a Western brand. So they used to nearly source from 50, 60 countries and then they, they would just patch everything together or ship it around. It was a very complex structure. And then and then make it available to uh, the customer. So uh, with those rules changing, I think we've seen a lot of shift. And, and there was first a movement towards following where's the cheapest place to produce. And, and uh, we've seen that direction take place and a lot of issues all the way to Bangladesh. Uh, and not just mass market brands. I mean, there were even some premium and luxury brands producing in some challenging locations that didn't respect the standards. Uh, to a moment now where suddenly there's a conversation around automation and localization. I think a pandemic like the one we're living now actually kind of displayed that you cannot be fully dependent on one location because if everything shuts down, you don't have access to products. Uh, when it's a global shutdown, it's a global shutdown, but if it's a regional one, you may still continue your business, but you don't have products to access. And uh, so I think there's so much interdependency that people are re-questioning their supply chain models. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a huge appetite for localization uh, and maybe diversification. So if you're a global brand, you may actually look at potentially producing in different regions of the world, uh, certain quantities or certain type of products. Uh, but the other thing is this was because everything stopped it allowed people to restart the way they engage with the customer, which impacts all the way to the supply chain. So I have seen even D2C brands, uh, they're basically direct-to-consumer, online only, starting with much more of a pre-order approach because they didn't have access to the factory immediately, but they, they were continuing their uh, social media marketing. And then they were able to get pre-orders uh, for products that sell out in 30 minutes for millions of dollars of value. Uh, which is an indication that, you know, if you're strong as a brand, there will still be demand for what you do, even if it means that you're going to you're gonna wait six weeks to be able to have that product. So maybe the pre-order um, pre world could actually be the future because you actually can calculate the demand and you don't overproduce and you don't have to market what has been overproduced. Yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of technology, right? Because it allows you to kind of showcase what you're doing without necessarily having a physical product. And uh, and people are more comfortable clicking and buying it, knowing that it's going to come later. It's it's the ideal scenario, both from a sustainability perspective, but also for a brand, because you, you are able to get payment before you place the order so that you're able to balance your financial uh, challenges as well. Uh, and then you're, you have secure orders. Uh, so I think the trick is figuring out how do you create or measure demand for what you're creating before it's produced. So that in itself, if every brand did that, it will take this sustainability conversation quite far because we would only produce what's already been desired and paid for. 
so if we can get there, that in itself is a big move. But then the next question is, you know, what is your marketing uh, approach? Is it about to sell more and more and more? Or is it about engaging this community to buy differently? Uh, and where else can you generate revenue for your brand? Is it just about products? Or is it about experiences? Or, uh, or is there a part of it that's about leasing and providing subscription to services and products? Or is it about taking back things and upcycling? Makes total sense. I feel like uh, that's the future and that's the challenge. And we really have a responsibility to change. And I think it's also the right moment to change. We have so much um, time. And I think fashion was always that kind of system that never had a break. So like designers like I, we always were late for collections. The suppliers are always late to sample. Everyone is always late with the traditional model. I feel like right now is the time to really throw away all the strategies you had and like re-strategize. For sure. And I think it's even the role of the designer in this whole equation that needs to be rethought. Because, uh, you know, traditionally you assume a designer sits in a studio and just creates a collection. And you know that very well that it's not just that there's so much more that goes into it. You are a creative director, artistic director, but also a business person. And you're also overseeing all of the marketing and the visual aspects and engagement and social media. Uh, but also you are trying to build a community and a culture around the brand you're creating. So we've seen a movement towards fashionization of every other industry. Now that fashion is part of everything we do, all the way to any kind of experience product you buy, places you stay, where you travel, uh, the, even all the way to the music you're listening. Uh, so now it's time for, I think, fashion designers and creatives to more aggressively be part of the rest of that uh, community as well to show that what they can do on top of creating clothes. In terms of uh, going back to the ecosystems, what do you think has the most impact on sustainability? Which parts of the ecosystem? I mean, uh, if, you, if you look... From a brand perspective, clearly, you know, there, there are a couple of things. One is around carbon emissions, right? So the one big impact is around, uh, especially at the raw material stage, the type of materials that are being used and the impact of that uh, process, and and then the production and the logistics and the shipment. But then the other big part is the amount of waste that's created, and then what happens to that waste. Uh, and when it comes closer to the individual, it becomes even much more concerning to all of us and more alarming because it's immediate. And one of those big conversations has been around, the, especially with the microfibers that goes into the water, uh, all the way to fish eating it. And then the fish you eat basically brings in plastic into your body. So if you uh, if you look at, uh, if you do a test now, you will see that you have, uh, everybody has plastic in their bodies. Yeah. And, and that is coming from uh, even... Uh, fibers shedding, polyester fibers shedding through washing uh, in the laundry process that goes into the water systems and then that, that goes back into the human body. So a story like that is it's incredible to see this full circle and that we are part of that circle and we are doing it to ourselves. If you're actually impacting our health is a good wake-up call for people to think about, you know, how, what are you are we thinking in the right way with what products are being created, what goes into it and its impact on us? Uh, but, you know, ultimately, 
you also have to consider the landfill issue and how much is being disposed of and the influence of that on uh, all the way to you know the water resources uh, to communities living around it uh, to also us pushing for constantly virgin fibers that are being used uh, so there are a lot of part of the equation that needs to be addressed and uh, it's not just about the impact of the production process i think you know we started the conversation with behavioral change if you say that ultimately if we change our way of thinking and behaviors around how we create but also how we use products both as a consumer as an individual we will go quite far in addressing these challenges and how do you think they uh, could provide incentives so that ethical decisions across the chain are rewarded and can yield to opportunity and not financial burdens that inevitably weigh heavier on smaller independent players I mean, uh, look, there, there's always a balance, right? So as you're building your brand, you have to also look at uh, sustainability as part of the marketing equation. So if you're only comparing the uh, production costs uh, side by side, it will always be a losing battle because you can always produce things uh, more cheaply. So there are places where there are incentives being put in place. Of course, Europe is leading in this. There's a lot of conversation at the EU level in uh, labeling products, but also eliminating all of the hazardous materials, especially out of that journey. But uh, you know, we've we've seen already the trend that people are being taxed for the brands are being taxed for um, products that are being disposed of. This is not happening yet at the fashion level. But for example, uh, when you produce a battery, let's say. Uh, the producer is already paying a small tax in advance uh, for the disposal process of that uh, battery. At some point, you can imagine fashion world will end up in the same place. Knowing that people don't keep these clothes for life, there's a cost to the, the society uh, for that disposal process. Uh, somehow the brands are going to be taxed for uh, not necessarily having the right system in place. But the other thing is when there is an incentive like this, it will not only incentivize the designer, but everybody in the value chain to see how you can use that amount of money in solving one of one of the parts of the problem. So, And the reality is that change is happening already. I'm part of a lot of conversations. I'm in a lot of judging panels for incubators, competitions around the world. And, you know, on the business side, there's a lot of innovation happening that the customer doesn't yet see, but it's in the making and it's coming. And it's everything from process innovation to material innovation to rethink the future of the fashion industry. Uh, so, every, you know, I, I am working with brands that are working on the next biomaterial that's grown in the lab, which will drastically reduce the environmental impact of the material all the way to process innovation that's either automating the process, localizing it, uh, taking the human out of that journey, uh, and sometimes it has negative implications, of course, but also looking at even things like how do you replace chemicals with biomaterials uh, for the dyeing process, mm -hmm. for the processing of the material. So this kind of innovation requires real science, uh, and it is happening in the chain that designer will not be able to do it themselves. Uh, but the minute they become commercially available, everybody will benefit from it. So as a creative, I think the best thing to do is try to find ones, even at a small scale, that can be brought into your own design process, highlighted and celebrated. Like us both being from Turkey, Burak, 
and Turkey being one of the most major player in manufacturing. What measures uh, are we taking to achieve these goals here in Turkey? I mean, uh, Turkey has done a great job in the optimization process and, and also providing really high quality manufacturing. That's no question. So at least you know there's a level of standard you're going to get both from a social and environmental perspective. Uh, and there's a lot of interest in also bringing design into that journey. Uh, I think there's the need to push it a bit further around the innovation part. Uh, I think what's not necessarily happening is that connecting with the, the garment industry, with the other industries, all the way to, you know, uh, uh, biochemicals, more scientific spaces where there's a lot of other innovation that can work with the garment industry to bring these really the next level of innovation that can change the whole value chain. And uh, there's a lot of research happening like this all the way to MIT or some Chinese universities. Uh, so I'm hoping to see a lot more of these to happen out of Turkey as well, because the minds are there. I think we are just not bringing the right people together to show that there's an opportunity uh, to really be a leader. So also uh, which countries and organizations do you see leading in this way? A lot of the research universities in U.S. is doing a stellar job because they already have some of the top scientists anyways. And there's a recognition that uh, the research they do can apply to many industries, including fashion. Uh, and uh, and I'm seeing a lot especially happening in more the northwest cluster of U.S., you know, the MITs and Harvards and uh, Yales and the Cornells. Uh, also, on the West Coast, and much more on the technology side, there's a lot of research happening in that whole business model perspective, the future of retail sense. And uh, China is doing incredible investments in the same space. Uh, and uh, slowly, even luxury brands are taking uh, recognition of this. So I was part of the Caring K Generation Award, which we just launched last November in China. It was only open for Chinese innovators. And I was quite surprised to see the number of new solutions that were being proposed for process innovation as well as material innovation that's going to bring some kind of positive sustainability impact, but also the positive business benefit for the industry itself. And some of it is high tech. Some of it is very much focused on machinery and equipment. And uh, I think... We just, what we need to do is put brands behind incentivizing this kind of innovation, giving visibility to investors uh, and uh, sorry, inventors, uh, but also promoting investors to support this kind of invention in these locations rather than the uh, look looking for investing in the next unicorn. You know, uh, how many more Uber type of businesses that are going to be built? We don't know. Uh, but the, the opportunity is there to really be part of something that may look high risk, but it may be a solution that's going to scale up very quickly if it succeeds. And uh, so another competition I'm part of as a judge is the Global Change Awards. And what amazed me with that is, uh, well, number one, I have to give credit to H&M Foundation who's supporting it. They actually reward 1 million euros every year. And uh, so that's a significant amount of money for a small inventor. Uh, but also what is quite impressive is to see their outreach. Uh, I think this year we had uh, over 6,800 inventors yeah. apply. 
and these are not fashion people. I mean, these are inventors and, and from over over hundred countries. I forgot the exact number, but you know, it, it's it's uh, humbling to see innovations coming from all over the world, all the way to all across Africa. Uh, but that's the beauty of in a competition like this: when you put the right incentive and you get the message out. Uh, and let, let me tell you that one million euro goes so much further when you're based in Kenya than when you're based in Boston. So, so it, it, you know, in some ways, it's also good value for money. And some of these innovations are ne- not necessarily lab-grown solutions. It, it may be something much more mechanical, but maybe also based on some of the local traditions. But it's sensible solutions that can actually address a key issue for the industry. So why not listen to all of these diverse voices and give them an equal opportunity to highlight their innovation? But going back like to 2015, Burak, when you first made the move, why did you choose to move to academia and uh, took the position of uh, the Dean of Fashion of Parsons? Yeah, I mean, and the reality is uh, after being in the industry uh, for already over 15 years, you get a sense of what works, what doesn't work. And I saw the limitations of the system I was part of. I really cared about bringing positive change. Of course, support the business, but also uh, push for something much more purposeful with everybody I work with. And and we've done an amazing job in many senses, but it was very challenging at moments. And uh, I realized that if the, there's, there's one piece of the equation that's missing. So especially for larger brands, the connection between a design studio and rest of the business is uh, really significant. And somehow it feels like there's a disconnect unless the creative director is the owner of the brand. And most of the cases, that's not the case anyways, because as you get to a certain size, you bring in private equity, you get investment, you sell, you go public, and and you you lose your voice in that journey. And you, you continue to create uh, but you don't have control over how business is evolving and how it's built, uh, which means that uh, creatives' voice were disappearing. And then I also saw a lot of young designers coming into the system, and they were so passionate about things that I'm talking about, but they felt like they didn't have a voice. And they were only being told to only address a very specific task in their daily job. And they were getting burnt out. And I also saw that creators are being used as part of more than anything, just the marketing of the brand and not necessarily driving the creativity within the brand's overall business model, but even with the product. So when I was exposed to all of these realities, and then I have been approached to even consider applying for the role to become the dean at Parsons, I immediately jumped into it because the reality is if you can get to the minds of the designers at a younger age, and they're really infused and embedded at, at an early stage, they will be much more vocal and much more kind of empowered to be able to take action to bring change or basically create a movement in some ways to say, if you're not going to allow me to do this in a true, honest way, in the way I believe in it, I don't want to be part of your organization. And in some ways, we kind of, wanted to build that confidence, but also give them the tools to be able to talk properly, understand the impact of the industry, understand the role of design in that journey and their ability to design beyond just a collection. I mean, most of the time you don't even design a full collection if you're a junior designer, 
you may be doing just knitwear or, or a very specific category. And, you know, it, you, you burn out after a couple of years uh, because it's the same thing over and over and you need to come up with solutions in today's world, maybe 12 times a year. Uh, it, it's a challenging moment. So uh, it's to say that we need to get it, get out of this, you know, the, the factory line kind of setup to say that you're only managing one part of the equation to working in a very different work setting and designers playing a different role. And uh, to be able to do that, of course, we made a lot of changes in the curriculum and also what the designers were asked to do. Uh, and I think we succeeded to an extent to really push the definition of what a fashion designer is and how they can be part of the society in bringing change. So I feel important. you already answered almost my next question, but uh, maybe you would like to add to it. Um, it's uh, sure. basically what you couldn't achieve in the corporate world uh, and what you could achieve on the academic uh, academic side. I feel like you already tapped into it, which is changing people's mind. And it starts from the core. It starts from education. Is there anything else that you think you would like to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the, the one element is, you know, you may change the mindset in the academic setting of the designers, but the, uh, the, the big uh, part of the equation is designers pushing when they're in corporate is one way of bringing change, but the ultimate change is going to happen by changing the mindset mm -hmm. of the leadership in larger brands. And uh, to be able to do that, I think even, even in my uh, role as the dean, we actually just recently launched a new master in fashion management. And uh, so my big push was to say that there's a big trend for uh, fashion industry to hire people from either management consultancy firms or people with a finance background uh, or from uh, the key MBAs around the world to lead companies. I appreciate the level of education they bring in and they're very good at what they do, mm -hmm. but they don't understand the creative process. And they also are not connected to the rest of the world because traditionally an MBA doesn't teach you how to be part of society. They are trying to change it, but they're not there yet. And in some ways, I think we have seen the trends that the demand for MBA has fluctuated. And uh, so there's a new kind of education that's needed. Part of it is maybe looking at new degree offerings. But the other part is also ongoing education of professionals in these key roles to understand what is it to be a creative, what does it mean to work with a creative, what does it mean to be part of society, and how do we take a brand forward uh, as a business leader. So some changes that we've done uh, for fashion design curriculum was, number one, get rid of the requirement that you have <laughs> to create a collection to graduate. Yeah, because, you know, as a creative, you can be creative in many ways. Yes, you need to learn how to construct a garment. You're getting a fashion design degree, no question. Uh, and, and you learn the, the ins and outs of that in your first two years. But your last two years is really going deep into who you are taking that out and figuring out who you want to be when you graduate. And it, traditionally, that was all about understanding materials, experimenting with materials, and then final year creating a collection. Yes, that's absolutely one way of doing it. And I'm not saying there's no place for that in the world. Yes, there is. Uh, but beyond that, we wanted to expand that definition. And uh, so we basically introduced new pathways into the journey Uh, all the way to one being called uh, fashion systems and society. And that really challenge designers that are in this space 
to say that you're creating a system and not a collection. Yes, the system in, can include a collection, no question. Absolutely use your fashion design skills to be part of it. But the system has to understand its place in this world. Connection to the community that you're part of, issues that you care about, uh, and, and how do you create a system to enhance that, to be more resilient, more interesting, more, more uh, purposeful, more cheerful, and uh, and also in that system, you're looking at every impact you have, both on the people, the environment, your community, the business. Uh, so it's bringing all of the equation together. So training designers to think in that mindset as they're going into creative journey brings out very different outcomes. And, uh, and all the way to really coming up with new business models around what they do. Uh, and then recognizing that it's not about just uh, following the traditional system as I need hmm. to do four collections a year that goes into the cycle and I have to show in a fashion week. It doesn't have to be that. And and what fascinated me is out of that, we've seen so many people that are part of the industry in a very unique way, not necessarily just as a brand, uh, but providing solutions. So for example, we had a designer. Uh, she was already independently volunteering with uh, visually impaired people in her free time. Uh, so she actually worked with them to understand their whole daily life. You know, she spent time in their houses and then spent time talking to them. And she came up with a you know whole garment system that was not about necessarily just the look of it. Yes, it was functional stuff they can wear, but it was the texture that went into it, uh, understanding how they select garments, what goes into it. And uh, so she she played with uh, you know the the textures, the colors. Uh, but also all the way to creating a whole new language system, so beyond Braille. So she she created something where you're able to use the phone, which actually uh, activates uh, immediately to uh, the voice prompt to tell you what what color is the garment, what material, what is it good for. And and she ended up creating a business that was around uh, licensing this technology to large brands. So suddenly, this kind of a journey out of a fashion design degree created somebody to create a technology brand that's used by fashion industry. So uh, so and it was all about the idea of universal design, how to make products accessible to everybody without alienating people throughout that journey. So, you know, even if you're not visually impaired, you shouldn't feel like this is a product for visually impaired people. It's just being more inclusive rather than exclusive. It all takes a little switch in the mind to say that as I'm creating, I'm not just thinking about creating a collection. I'm thinking about the whole system and then really come up with what that can lead to. I mean, uh, just, to, uh, just to give a sense of the other end, you know, we had designers that basically said, okay, I'm not going to create any physical product. Uh, and I want to change the whole experience of uh, how you experience products. So he created a whole system uh, around experiencing products because he cared about uh, music, performance, cinema. Uh, he's good at his words and writing. So he uh, wrote a script uh, and he produced and filmed a film related to that. He wrote original music for it. And whole, his whole idea was uh, basically how to present a set of garments and a story behind it with the music, performance, film uh, in a very immersive space. And then he created a whole digital presentation of it. And we've even shared it with the retailers uh, to show what is the next generation retail 
potentially can look like. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's fascinating to me to see that you can actually encourage designers who came with the mindset that they're going to create a garment to end up with a whole new solution that can revolutionize a part of the industry. You know, from listening to you and uh, your thoughts, it seems like the future designer and future brand decision maker is not a collection designer. It's actually a listener. Yeah. I mean, a listen, observe, absorb figure out how to kind of use that as part of your you know, creative drive and, and bring something from that feedback. And it should absolutely be based on that feedback. I mean, in the past, I think there was a period where uh, fashion design was not about that input that's coming from around us. It was not through a dialogue most of the time. Yeah, I mean, you guys also um, taking out the, the collection presentation to graduate is also shows the world that you you as a designer don't necessarily have to design collections as an end goal you can work for someone you can work for and tech companies yeah you can yeah, the sky's the limit you can create your tech company you can create your tech company i mean if we have another uh, graduate who basically created a beauty tech company a uh, partnering with uh, another friend of hers and uh, it's basically Uh, through your phone, scanning the texture of your face and making recommendations on beauty products and a, and all the way to drop shipping you regular product that they think is appropriate for your skin. I, I mean, normally fashion designers don't dare to go there, but it's incredible that uh, the way we open education allows them to think very differently. And part of the final thing I want to say about the changes we've done in the curriculum is Uh, you know, I recognize that innovation doesn't happen with the end product. It happens in the process. So we wanted to encourage process innovation and celebrate it. So we change our reward structure. We used to reward people for the best collection of the year. And it, it's so outdated in some ways. Uh, so that became new awards that are focused on process and in four categories. So it was uh, creative systems, social innovation, future textiles and fashion and technology and none of that require you to create a garment and you can apply to any of these categories so suddenly we became much more experimental in the way we encourage people to think about what's the future of design and what can the designer do what's your advice burak for designers that can't afford a formal education in fashion how can they develop their skills Yeah, I mean, and, and this is one thing that became easier because of technology. Uh, so the the basic part of, let's say, if you want to study fashion design, the basic on how to construct the garment. Today, you can do that at home through even YouTube to learn the basics. Uh, and in some ways, that's a good thing to do, even if you're going to go for a formal education, because it gives you the core skills and allow you to practice, because that's about practice makes perfect. But On the other hand, you also need to understand the future is not necessarily you doing everything with your own hands. You're doing that to understand the process to go about it. And that process is changing. Uh, so uh, beyond free resources that are available to learn uh, how to construct things together, it's also about being part of the community. I mean, there's so many events and talks and podcasts and Uh, and ways of engaging without necessarily investing money into uh, is is a great resource to understand how the system works. Uh, once you understand that system and the LMS you care about, 
then understand that it's not just about sketching or coming up with a collection, but there's 2 million different things you can do within the fashion industry. And then really honing onto those spaces and building your skills based on existing resources. And then leveraging the network and being persistent to really find a way to do internships, freelance work, be, be part of that creative process, even if it means that you're just there with the people observing. Uh, that in itself will open so many doors, gives you new skills, and allow you to be much more experimental uh, and show your ability to also create to people at what at some point will support you financially, hire you, or maybe allow you to create your own brand out of that. But we are also living in a world, especially if you want to build your own brand, you know, part of the equation is about your social media presence, understanding how to engage with people. And, you know, th- without that, it's very difficult to succeed, even if you're very talented. So you need to even diversify your skills be- beyond thinking what is required to be a fashion designer and understanding how how do you build your following, how do you build your community, how do you understand what people need, and how, how do you engage with them to create, and create many different things. It's not just clothes. How do young designers uh, raise capital to start their business? I mean, uh, number one thing is uh, being too attached to your own designs because, uh, you know, you need to be humble. I think the biggest mistake is to think that what you <laughs> created is what everybody should want. Uh, if, if if you want to be a business, you have to understand that you need to find people who want to buy what you created. Otherwise, there's no place for it in this world. Otherwise, it's not a business. Maybe maybe it can be an art piece, <laughs> but ultimately, you you need to make sure that you are in tune with what people want. Uh, and sometimes people may not know it, and you have to be okay with experimenting and creating and testing it. But be open to feedback. So the biggest mistake is to be too stubborn about what I created is the best. And if people don't want it, it's their fault. Uh, And uh, the other mistake is also not managing their cash flow properly. Because, you know, ultimately, you know, fashion is a business. If you're going into it, you need to make sure that you can balance your, uh, you know, financials. Uh, If you don't manage your cash flow, you're out of business very, very quickly. And that's why business models like pre-order is quite significant. You have to look at the smart way to go about it. How do you create a smaller, I don't even want to use the word collection, but we are moving in a direction where now it's more about the individual product anyways. So how do you reduce the number of things you produce, focus on as little as possible, but do it in the best way, create desire for it through all the technology you can use through social media without heavily investing into uh, really getting following for it. Uh, And then uh, make sure that you grow it in a sustainable, financially sustainable way. And, uh, you know, raising money for a traditional fashion brand is probably the most difficult at this moment uh, because there are a lot of brands out there. uh, And with a crisis when people are questioning how much they're going to buy it's going to be very difficult, uh, definitely not from venture uh, capital or private equity, unless you get to a certain size. Uh, but as a small brand, you have to rely on the f- friends and family rounds or your ability to create individual pieces and start selling them until you achieve a certain size. 
even in New York City, I've seen that with students while they're in school, either they are able to get support from family to build small collections, do pop-up stores, start building a brand name, but not everybody is lucky enough to be able to do that. Uh, or individuals that actually don't even have the financials to be able to easily support themselves are using their hands uh, and their outreach from social media, being clever about the way they photograph, they communicate, and then do individual pieces and start getting orders from people, doing just custom pieces, and slowly starting that, but also looking for opportunities to apply for awards and grants and the existing larger fashion system to support small designers trying to get recognition. Uh, so there's some kind of endorsement to give them the media coverage so that people can start following. And what do you think uh, the responsibility of the consumer is in this ecosystem? I mean, uh, you know, even as a creative, you're a consumer. And you know, as all individuals, we're all consumers. So I also have a challenge separating individual from consumer because it's uh, acting like we are two different personalities. When we are a consumer, we behave one way. We, as an individual, we behave a different way. So, you know, as an individual that is engaging with fashion, yes, part of it is around consuming, but it's changing the mindset to say that it's not about consumption. It's about a much more of an engagement with fashion in a different way. So I would love to figure out how do we change that dialogue to say it's not just about buy, 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 and, and there's a limit to that. And in reality, I think the brands recognize that because we are seeing a shift towards engaging the individual in the creative process. And there has been a lot of discussions around the various fashion weeks, right? We've been also discussing uh, together, me and you, on a personal level. But uh, there have been many calls to make them gender, gender neutral, introduce less uh, expensive formats, uh, de de decrease delivery time from the show to shelves in fashion. Are fashion weeks still relevant to you? And what changes would you like to see? Yeah, I, I mean, in some ways, I think it's proven that they're not relevant anywhere in the world. And yeah. everybody's uh, thinking about how to change it. A lot of people made money from it. There was a whole system, but suddenly because it's shut down, now it has to change. There's no other way. And uh, I, I, going back to even this issue of gender, the reality of gen gen Generation Z, Anywhere in the world, by the way, it's not just in the West, because you know I, I meet people from also here in Turkey, Asia to Middle East, to Europe, to US, yeah, everywhere. It, it, you know, it's more the gender-free, and this is a terminology in New York. It's used a lot, gender-free, because you know it's not a question of what is your gender. You're who you want to be, and that's fine. And you would wear what you want to wear, and that's fine as well. And you know. I understand the questions around cuts and the fits, but yeah, you know, that I don't care about like sizes uh, and height yeah, which and gender else. a piece is. I'll just like unless it fit it doesn't fit me. It's it's all about the fit. And you know, and 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 the reality is technology is moving in a direction where it's all individualized, right? So the minute it's individualized, then design is just design. Doesn't matter if it's 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 made for whatever gender, it should not be made for a gender anymore. You should pick what you like. And the technology is even there for you to, I mean, I, I just ordered uh, jeans from a company called Unspun in, uh, in California. Uh, basically, I did my full body scan. Uh, and then they basically take my measurements and do a full custom fit uh, denim created based on my measurements. I mean, I was a bit nervous <laughs> seeing my own full body scan because it shows every detail and you see what is right and wrong. 
but it's amazing to see that I have my measurement already saved as a, a digital file and I can now send it to whoever. Yeah, I mean, but going back to the Fashion Week conversation, when it's customized, individualized, uh, and I'm engaging through technology, and it's going to feel very differently. And it's at the individual level, and, and the wholesale model is not relevant. You know, Fashion Weeks were first for wholesale, then it became for marketing. Uh, but you know it's it's been done so much, and uh, you know there's so many people doing the exact same thing in a tiny frame that you don't get the recognition. So you're burning cash for no reason. Uh, so now it's all about finding your community, telling your story, because the only purpose for was for marketing. But there are more you know there are smarter ways of marketing than just being part of a fashion week. So then you will have to question: Do I need to take part in it? There's a place for a couture week, sure. Large brands will continue doing some format of what they're experiencing. Yes, for sure. But the schedule didn't make sense because it was for the wholesale model. If that's the case, the number one thing that's going to happen is alignment with the uh, time we want to buy products. You know, who wants to buy a, a winter coat uh, end of summer uh, when it's still 30 degrees out? Wholesalers want more time to sell. They want to limit the risk of inventory. That's the only 100%. reason this is uh, existing still today. 100%. So since uh, that's becoming irrelevant, uh, it's going to look very differently. And I mean, the whole direct-to-consumer effort is now is the buzzword. In, it was the Silicon Valley. Now all over the world, everybody's building these brands. Uh, it's all about that, you know, uh, yeah. for the moment. And you promote it when you're ready. Also, one thing I want to tap into is like your senior class uh, must be highly stressed right now in this industry climate. Uh, how should they approach it? Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, for anybody who's graduating in 2020, it you know it was a <laughs> you know bad luck in some ways. In some way, uh, to to be able to get, kind of finish off at a moment where everything is shut down. You know, it, it's sad to see you don't have a physical graduation ceremony. Absolutely, uh, you're not physically. If you're a creative, you're not physically able to show your work. Uh, but, you know, you roll with the punches and in some ways this is the moment to be innovative about it. Uh, it doesn't mean that what they created is irrelevant. There's a place for it. Uh, tell your story online, absolutely. Uh, but also find the right time when yeah. things So you up. see it more as an opportunity. Because, well, I mean, you need to make an opportunity out of it. Is it going to be easy to find a job in June? No, it won't be. Because the reality is, uh, especially in U.S., you look at the unemployment numbers. Uh, it's not a moment to try to get a full-time job uh, during the summer. Which means that what it, what opportunity lies in that is to really be much more risk taker. Try to see what you can create out of it yourself, and you don't have to do it alone. I mean, the most people that kind of come up with an idea are the ones who create these collective spaces. I already were, was following a lot of movements where I've seen, you know, young designers coming together, three, four, five, uh, creating their collectives, movements, where they do stuff together and be creative. It doesn't mean that it was just doing fashion products, but they were being creative. But potentially even look at, can you offer services if you're good at, let's say, tailoring or pattern cutting? You know, that, Can you offer it as a service where there's always a need, even if it's not a full-time job, even if it means you're supporting smaller brands that already have some kind of need online and uh, they're not able to find the people to support them uh, or they're not able to produce far away and they need local support. 
So really thinking out of the box in the support you can provide in the short term, but be part of these communities. Uh, but also look at what can you do to change that uh, system itself with your uh, friends. And look at the recent graduates from the past years, because they are probably going to be much more open to kind of listening to you. And, you know, not everybody is having an easy, easy way at the moment, but even if it means that you're interning with them, you probably have a higher chance in supporting somebody that started a business in the past two or three years than a large brand which may have closed their offices. So you have to be very innovative and also you have to be flexible with geography. We pave our own paths as individuals. I'm optimist that if you have the right attitude and, and you're resourceful and you're courageous and you're curious, even if it's a painful journey and it may be painful, you will come out of the end of the tunnel. There, there's definitely always a light end of the tunnel. It's just, can you get yourself there? And, and that may be a very different path than you always imagined. And that's why I say that I always think about reinventing myself because we always have to rethink what's next and how to rethink uh, the way we use what we've learned in our past. And it doesn't have to be the same model as everybody else's. And that change uh, frequency is actually speeding up. Uh, So in some ways, uh, I think we have to be okay with regular change. Because and what does life after academia look like for Burak Chakmak? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess, I, guess uh, I am always excited about new business models, innovation. I will always take my values of sustainability with me, uh, but also really figure out how do we build communities in a different way. Uh, because, you know, I, I look at everything that I care about and I will be part of, many entrepreneurial ventures going forward for sure uh, that's linking uh, you know sustainability community but also fashion design business education and and operated globally so um, and then there's so many intersects uh, so it's not going to be one thing and uh, but you know I, I want to be resourceful and I want to think about that I just want to thank you for being part of this and all the words that you gave to the people. And uh, thank you for being part of this. No, thank you for inviting me, Benjamin. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I must also say that, you know, I really love what you're doing. And I love the fact that you're thinking about how to change who you are and who you want to be in the future. Thank you, Burak. Thank you for listening to Homeroom with Benjamin Aydin. And our guest today, Burak Chakmak. Be sure to tune in for an all-new episode next week. For more on our series, go to soul.digital. You can also follow us on Instagram by going to at souldxp and at Benjamin Aydin. See you next time. You're listening to Soul Radio.